this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast that sometimes we have to do over because Well, this we, is episode 32B. Right. Or maybe 32.02. Or 32 point. In any case, if you listen to our episode 32 about Malaga Island, we had some severe technical <laughs> difficulties that we didn't realize we were having. And we and we really felt like we just need a redo. Yeah, I a do-over. We felt it's an important enough story that we need to... We don't want the distraction of my breathing. And my tinny voice <laughs> way somewhere like in the way off in the distance. And I think that was worse than any... I mean, some of our early episodes, we had some issues with sound as we were learning how to do this. I think that was the this, worst one. But it was the absolute worst one, and there was no excuse for it. We're sorry. And we hope that anyone who... If you listen through that whole thing, God, God love you. God bless you. Thank right. you. But if you... And that's from two atheists. Yeah, I know. But if you couldn't stand it, this is going to be a nice, clean episode. We hope. we hope that will be easier to listen to. We can't do anything about our voices, but we can... Yeah, sorry about that. So, we are what we are. So we had taken a month off. Yes, we have. And what did you do on your summer vacation? I did not do that much. Because it wasn't really a vacation. No. I worked most of it, and then I did take some time off. Um, you had a week off when Hannah's she had summer went to camp, day camp, yeah, the recreation department, which ended weirdly. August eleventh was the last, and school doesn't yeah. start until September third or whatever. Wow. Whatever the Wednesday is after Labor yeah, Day. Yeah, what do you do with the kid for? Oh, I just three leave her at home. Yeah, I think if you like duct tape her up and throw her in a closet. I gave her, you know, I told her to run to the neighbors because we don't have a landline, yeah. so or something bag. She right. just run and ask them to call them. Keep the door locked and don't let any strangers yeah, in the house. She'll basically. be fine. We don't really have TV for her to watch all day. Oh, yeah, she can watch TV, but we don't have anything. Just give her a bunch well, of Well, she likes iPads. a tablet. Yeah, she, she likes, likes to tablets. play um, Roblox. Every time after so. she's at our place, I have to get Mom's tablet and remove all the apps. I, as you know, and it's one of the reasons we had to take time off, had to finish reading so many books for a self-published writer contest. Yes. Something I, and you'll remind but me that I'm never going to do it again. She says every time she's not going to do it again, and she does it again. And it was exhausting and a little disheartening in some ways. I did get an episode for my Cranky Editor podcast out of it. And we got, oh, oh yes, you did. Yeah. Why, what were you going to say? I thought you were going to say, I got an episode of my Cranky Editor out, and I'm like, yes, Yeah, I did, did that, too. I haven't for a couple and weeks. And you went camping. Yeah, Liz. Sister Liz. Right, who Liz. you guys met, if you listened to episode 31. Kyron Horman. Yes. Because she lives in Oregon. But she uh, she was out here for, we had a family reunion in New Hampshire that we don't need to talk about. So she and I went to Baxter State Park, which is a huge park in north central Maine. Yes. And very rustic. And we also took a ride through the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. That's controversial because... And if you want to hear our whole rant about national monuments and national parks, you could listen to the beginning of... Right, you can listen to <laughs> the, the bad episode. episode 32, or you can also go to maincrimewriters.com. I blogged about it August 17th, where I talk about it and put some pictures up, and so I don't have to repeat. It's much more articulate than any rant I could go through right uh. now. But I will say that it's hard to find because the governor of our state ordered that the signs for it not be put up because the president of he our... some kind of... Thing, a vendetta against it. He has a vendetta it. against know. it. Despite he's one of those people that no matter what, whatever his opinion is, he's not going to change it. No matter what. Even if it's stupid. Even Yeah, no matter what evidence. It's so. a very new national monument. It's very wild and it's beautiful. President Obama made it a national monument last year. 
the new administration is thinking of stripping it of its national monument status. And the landowner who spent years buying up all the land deeded it to the federal government so it could become a national park or national monument. So it's unclear if they strip it what's going to happen. I'll tell you one thing that's not going to happen. It's not going to become Timberland USA anymore because hmm. that industry is gone. And I mean, it's not gone, but it's never coming back no, the way it was. not the way it was. Anyways. So I went there and I did lots of other things. I'm doing a lot of freelancing, writing, and um, it's very busy being unemployed. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that about you. More of your time is taken up now. Well, um, I spend a lot of time editing yeah, podcasts. Yeah, you're doing, well, <laughs> but you're also doing freelance stuff. Trying to get my book written. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff you're doing to make money instead of doing a job. It ends up adding up to more than, you know, a lot right. more than it doesn't add up. a week. It doesn't add up to a lot of money, but no. it ends up adding. And so we had an update before we get to the story. On our favorite on Anthony Sanborn, case, our favorite Anthony un- Sanborn. A judge a few weeks ago would not dismiss the case for the post-conviction review that was asked for by the state. And I won't go into all the details. You can listen to episode 22. But basically, he was in jail for 27 years for a murder he probably didn't commit. He was out, He's been out on bail since April, and there's a lot of legal wranglings going on. He's going to be back in court in October, but they'd ask that the case be dismissed because the defense took too long to bring it up. And I'm not sure if it's too long since he was let out of jail or too long since he was convicted. It's still not clear why they started to review this case in 2016. And I keep looking for it in the traditional news coverage just for somebody to mention it. Well, for some reason, I feel like his wife has kept up the pressure constantly she's been advocating for him for a long time so maybe she talked but yeah we don't know that what actually happened to make them it takes a lot to open the case amy fairfield his attorney was appointed she we don't know by whom so she didn't say yeah and she was appointed she wasn't like someone hired her so I, i mean and his wife you know, it was six. He was sixteen when this happened, and his wife was a teenage friend of his, yes. and they kept up I think a friendship reconnected, yeah. and reconnected. Anyway, so we will keep we'll talk about that again for another travesty of justice. Yes, we have the main the, the main, main secret the major chain. story today. We are not going to talk about the crime of an individual, but a crime that was perpetuated by the state of Maine against a group of people. It's going to be kind of a history lesson. Oh, I love history lessons. We are going to talk about Malaga Island, Maine, and what happened to the people who lived there. Before I do that, I'm going to talk about some other stuff, so just be patient. It will all make sense as we go along. Maine is the whitest state in the nation. That's not just hyperbole. That is according to the U.S. Census Bureau. I know a lot of people think that some of the Midwestern states are like Kansas or whatever. You know, they always think of these Iowa, Kansas, North Dakota, non-diverse. But the three northern New England states, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, have the most white people. Caucasian European descent, with Maine coming in the most at 97% white. Even so, Maine has had black citizens going back generations and hundreds of years. Historians have learned of black Mainers as far back as the 1660s. And although there were a few slaves in Maine before slavery was outlawed in 1783 in Massachusetts, and Maine was a part of that commonwealth, most black people living here were not slaves. 
and then Maine became its own state in 1820, so it was never was a slave. So what I want to do here for a minute is explain my use of the word black to describe the ethnic group instead of African American. I think African American is what people consider the politically correct word for it. I don't want to offend anyone, so if anyone of color has issues with my use of language or reasons for using the word black, let me know. My and if white people have an issue with it, they can pounce that, all of it. I don't care what they think. My feeling is that not all people with black skin are African American. And nationality is different than an ethnic group. And to be honest, a person in this fucked up racist country is judged not by what country his or her ancestors came from, but what color his or her skin is. So put it this way. We had a president who could trace his lineage back to being related to the presidential Bush family, Dick Cheney's ancestors, and even Brad Pitt. But all people could see was the fact that he was a black man. Mm -hmm. And I've come to believe race in quotation marks, is a social construct. And clearly all humans are the same race or we wouldn't be able to have babies together. But people have this need to separate and form groups that exclude others and fight each other and subjugate others. And I am no means excusing any of that. And I am not one of those people who says I don't see color. That's not what I mean by what I just said. I hear you. I do see color. I realize that as a white person I have privilege. But as a white person, that's a difficult subject to talk about, and it feels presumptuous to talk about it. But with this story, I'm going to have to talk about race. Please well, email us if you want to clarify something or let me know what you think. I'm very open. I've heard people of color say, not all of them, I, I'm not generalizing, but that there are people who prefer black because their ancestors aren't from Africa. That's right. And like Native American, and you don't hear many people from Native tribes calling themselves Native American, it's one of those terms that everybody felt was a good term. And I don't mean politically correct in a bad way, I mean it in a good way. Yeah, people just felt that, that was less offensive or more was, accurate than Indian. And I think people felt the same way about African American as opposed to black. But it's not accurate, necessarily. When you're talking about history, something like this, you do have to refer to race. And it would be nice if there were a way to do it that would make everyone happy, and there just aren't. And frankly, people are treated the way they are because of the way they look. They are. And it's as superficial. You, and as you go I'm into the story, people from the same family can look like they're from different yes. races and be treated totally differently, even though they're, they've got the same DNA. And a really good book that kind of talks about that is called Caucasia by Danzy Senna. Have you ever read that book? I have. She's biracial. And her sister is, she and her sister look totally different. She One's, she looks white. Her and sister her sister's black. black. I guess it's a memoir. I can't remember if it's a memoir or if it's a fictionalized I think it's fictionalized memoir. because but I seem to remember you and I having a discussion about the whole concept of fictionalizing. Which, by the way, if you're self-publishing and entering a contest, I strongly suggest you don't <laughs> not that i'm obsessed own the book own the names if there's reasons you can't use someone's name indicate why like yeah. Anne rule does or something okay all righty so let's get on with the story meat of the story in the 18th and 19th centuries in maine there were several island communities with black residents among them an island called negro island or n-word 
off the coast of Camden. Only they didn't the say N-word. N-word. Island. They said, from what I've read, it was not called Negro Island. It was called N-word and Island. It's now called Curtis Island in any case. There was Horse Island at the mouth of the Noon Meadows River and our subject today, Malaga Island. And I'm going to give you a little bit of geography to put things in context. Good. It would help if you looked at a map, too, because the main coastline, if you follow along the coast in and out of all of the bays, coves, and inlets, is 3,478 miles long. As the crow flies from Kittery to Eastport, which is the southwest tip to the most northeast tip because it goes in kind of a diagonal, it's only 225 miles. So there's a lot of in and out coastline. If you draw a diagonal line between these two points, the New Meadows River is about a third of the way up from Kittery. It's a tidal river. It looks like a skinny inlet, real wide at the bottom, and then it kind of narrows up. It's only 12 miles long. It flows down from a marsh 12 miles north into Casco Bay. And so it's pretty wide at the bottom. It's got the town of Phippsburg to the east, and Harpswell is to the west. It almost looks like Harpswell looks like a peninsula coming down, but they consider those rivers. Malaga Island is almost into Casco Bay, but it hugs the shore of Sabasco, which is a, an area of Phippsburg. A little south of Malaga Island is Horse Island, and which is now called Harbor Island, because I guess that's more glamorous than Horse Island. The island was uninhabited for a long time, Malaga, probably because... It's rocky, and the soil isn't good for any kind of farming. Mm. There's a lot of shells and stuff on it. I don't know if it was one of those ones where the Indians would throw their shells. Uh, well, also, shells seagulls drop yeah. shells to break them open to eat what's inside. It's about a half mile by a quarter mile. About 1860, three of the granddaughters of Benjamin Darling and their family set up house on Malaga. Benjamin Darling was reportedly a slave of Captain Darling, who I could not find his name anywhere, his first name. Maybe his first name was Captain. Captain. Ben came up from somewhere in the south. Some accounts say he was from the West Indies, and some say he was from the southern states. The ships would go up and down the coast, so he could have been from anywhere. His DNA, they DNA tested some of his descendants, and the DNA was traced to the Senegal or Gambia region of Africa. According to the legend, the ship captain... Darling, which he shared a name, as a lot of slaves did, gave him his freedom for saving his life in a shipwreck. Huh. Although my feeling is that it could have been something more mundane, whether he was a slave or a shiphand, who knows, but he might not have been needed anymore once they got to Maine. And slavery could have been outlawed by the time they got here because they're not sure when he got here. They could have gotten here. He couldn't keep him as a slave anymore. You know, yeah. Gave him his freedom. People like those stories. I know. You know. He saved him. Well, there was another one that his mother was a slave and she, I can't remember. It was this long involved story. It's like, it's, I doubt that any of that's true. Yeah. Like she hid him from someone and blah, blah, blah. And then there were also legends that he was a runaway slave that I'll talk about, which he was, he was not. But what we do know is he purchased Horse Island which is a little south of Malaga, in 1794 for 15 pounds. So at the time, he had 15 pounds to buy real estate, and he was a free black man. He was not a slave. It was called Horse Island because it was used to keep the horses for the Cornelius Ice Pond, or Wata Lake. They were kept there during the summer months. So there's something like 4,000-plus islands off the coast of Maine, and you see that a lot of them are named Cow Island, 
Sheep Island, Pig Island, Horse Island. If you're ever wondering why they would use these islands to stick the livestock, they just stick them on the island so they could graze or whatever, and then they go pick them up when they needed them. Easier than building a fence. That's right. They got all those islands out there. I mean, there's a lot of islands that are very small. You couldn't live on them or anything, but they had grass. They'd just throw them out there, and they could see them. The animals apparently did not try to swim. They just were like, especially if they're like sheep and stuff, I think they're just like, oh, (laughs) what are we doing out here? So Benjamin bought Horse Island. He married a white woman named Sarah Proverbs. From what I've read, he's a hardworking man. He lived to an old age. Sarah and Benjamin had at least two surviving children, a son, Ben Jr., who married and lived in Shepherd's Point and Hartswell. And Hartswell, as I said, is on the other side of the river from Pittsburgh. And later, he lived in Bath, which is up the Kennebec River. It's northwest of Malaga. They had a son, Isaac, who eventually owned Horse Island and then sold it to Joseph Perry in 1847. There's too much genealogy to get into, but Benjamin Darling had children and grandchildren. Three of his granddaughters moved on to Malaga Island in 1860. That's the upshot of the whole thing. The first settler was reported to be Henry Griffin, and he was married to one of the Darling granddaughters. He was black also. A lot of the husbands were white. There were a lot of couples that were one or the other. Uh, The Griffins were both black. The ownership of the island at the time, I mean, they knew the Perry family owned it, the same people that owned House Island. The ownership of the island was ambiguous. The Perry family owned it, kind of. They bought it, but they never paid taxes on it. They didn't do anything with it. They just left it there. So the grandchildren of Benjamin Darling decided that they were going to go live there, I guess. Squatters were not uncommon. Like I said, there are thousands of islands. People were making their living fishing or something. It wasn't uncommon to just take a piece of land and start living on it. There are two different versions of how Malaga Island got its name. One is that Malaga is the Abnaki word for cedar. I tried looking it up on a English to Abnaki thing on the internet and it didn't come up as anything. So I don't know. And Abnaki is the umbrella term for Maine's tribes, which tribes. are the Penobscot, the Passamaquoddy, the Maliseet, and the Micmac. Okay. But they may not have had differentiation like of cedar and other yeah, types of trees. Or so. they might have had a totally different way of describing them. Yeah. So who the hell knows? The other one is that in 1774 or 75, there was a shipwreck on the island carrying timber from Malaga, Spain. Although, why would they bring timber Yes, to it seems like that's kind of like the old taking coals to Newcastle yeah, kind of thing. Most of the families living on Malaga were descended from Ben Darling. The family surnames were Darling, Johnson, Wallace, Marks, Parker, Murphy, Gomes, Eason, Griffin, Barnes, Dunny, Tripp, McKinney. By the turn of the 19th to 20th century, there were about 50 full-time residents. If you see photos from that time, they are all colors and shades. Not only were there black people from the Darling line, but the main Scottish Yankee, you know, descendant. There were some Portuguese. There might have been Italian. There were a lot of Italians on the main coast, too. Mm. Uh, there, anyone that was like a fisher person. Right. It was a rough existence. As I said, the island was not good for farming, though many of the inhabitants had gardens to grow their own food. Most of them were in the fishing business. As I said, some worked on the mainland at farms or cleaning homes or in some of the resorts in the area. Mrs. Griffin, who was Henry's wife, took in laundry. 
And they've been doing an archaeological dig there since about, I think it was like 2008 or 2009. And they found tons of buttons and beads and stuff like that from around where her house was. Oh, she must have been losing people's buttons. I know. That's it. I know. It was, she was a busy woman. And yes, life was hard on Malaga Island, but life was difficult for many, many people in Maine at that time. Maine has never been a prosperous state overall, and we have always had those who eked out an existence however they could. Life was becoming harder for Mainers on the coast as the 19th century came to a close. The railroads were having a negative impact on the shipping business, so shipbuilding wasn't the industry it had once been. Also, due to overfishing, the fish stock had become very low, uh, and since folks on the coast and hmm. among the islands made their living from fishing, that was not good. Yeah. Thing. Well, they overfished. I mean, yeah. they didn't understand the way we do today. Right. The... Even though they'll ba- a lot of times people balk when there's limits put on I things, know. but you kind of have to do that. At this time, the towns would take care of their indigent residents. By the 1890s, the people of Malaga were asking for help from the town of Phippsburg. They were unable to make ends meet because of all their issues. And In 1891, for instance, Malaga was using 78% of Phippsburg's budget for helping poor residents. And there was another figure I saw in one of the things I watched that said $1,800. It was in that decade. I don't know when, what year it was, which is a lot of money. The town didn't want to keep supporting them and petitioned the state to declare Malaga part of Harpswell. If you look at the map, Malaga is almost on like a channel between it, but it's 150 yards from the coast of Malaga to the coast of Phippsburg. 50 yards, I'm sorry, so 150 feet. They're stuck to the coast of Phippsburg. They're nowhere near Harpswell. And so this state was like, no, you are part of Phippsburg. Yeah, nice try. You can take care of them. The dispute went on for about 10 years. The citizens of Malaga became wards of the state in 1905, finally. The state said, fine, we'll we'll take them on. And they took over their care. In the meantime, the Lane family, a missionary family who summered on Horse Island, took an interest in Malaga. Mr. and Mrs. George Lane were from Malden, Massachusetts. They set up a schoolroom in the home of James McKinney, the most successful fisherman on the island and known as the King of Malaga. The King! Apparently, it was common to call the best fisherman in a fishing community a king. The king in these communities would often settle disputes and act as a spokesman. McKinney was a white man of Scottish descent. His wife, Salome, was black. They did have a fairly large home. From what I read, a nice-looking house. There is a picture of it in one of the photos that we'll post on our website. Mrs. Lane and her daughter, Cora, would row over from their summer home on Horse Island, starting in 1903, in the summers they would have the classes, to the McKinney home, and they would teach the children reading, hygiene, home act type of stuff, and of course, Christian values. Of course. Well, they were missionaries. The Lewiston Evening Journal in 1907 said the school was a success, reporting, quote, the cleanly dressed children who a year ago could not read or write. Today, a majority can read short sentences, can count, spell, and do some excellent written exercises, end quote. The Lanes set up the Malaga Island Settlement Association, funded by private donations. The association was in Portland, but most of their donations came from people from the Massachusetts area. They would, you know, a lot of these missionaries would drum up support whatever their missions were and their churches back home and stuff. 
1908, they were able to build a schoolhouse on the island. The first full-time teacher was Evelyn Woodman, who lived in a room attached to the school and taught there for three years. After her, there were two other teachers until 1912, but she was the main teacher there, and she said that God told her what to do. Somebody interviewed her in the 50s, I think, and she said that she was a little hesitant to move there because she was a single young woman living on an island with a bunch of, you know, people that she didn't know, mixed ethnicities, but she said it was fine. There's some photographs of the school with the students, and they look like most other coastal kids at the time. They were poor, but they were nothing out of the ordinary. The Phippsburg Historical Society has some of their schoolwork, which is typical of the day, math problems, penmanship practice, that kind of thing. Mrs. Lane wrote a book for her donors to talk about the progress of the school and to drum up. They need something to see for their money. And it was called The History of Lane School. She showed before and after examples of the good the school was doing the children of the island. Unfortunately, it was in part the efforts of the Lane family's fundraising that helped bring an end to the community on Malaga. As word got out about this ethnically mixed community, people were scandalized. Local papers wrote stories about the supposed (coughs) depravity and squalor on the island, and national newspapers and publications picked up the story and embellished. Yellow journalism was the norm back then, so the stories were sensationalized as much as possible and painted the residents of the island as depraved, feeble-minded, inbred, etc. Holman Day, a main writer, poet, and filmmaker, and a correspondent for the Lewiston Sun, wrote an article in the September 1909 Harper's Monthly titled, The Queer Folk of the Main Coast, <laughs> which isn't what you think. No. About the Malagites, he said, and he called them Malagites, he said, quote, with the exception that their ideas of the social code of morals are primitive, they are blameless so far as their relations with the world go. They are not vicious. They show none of that sullenness that marks similar strata of society. By that he means the other coastal people. Those sullen... Other other coastal communities. They extend the rude hospitality of their island with touching warmth and sincerity. End quote. How nice of him. It's kind of condescending. He also says of the island, quote, There are about 50 persons on it, of all grades of Negro blood, and most of them descendants of a runaway slave who came and hid there more years ago than any remembers. These people form a strange clan. They have married and intermarried until the trespass on consanguinity has produced its usual lamentable effect. He then goes on to say they are cold all winter because they don't have the sense to save up wood. Mm-mm-mm. He says they are childlike. He tells the story of how a missionary had to spur them to fish and clam and sell their catch to save up money. And when the missionary left, confident that he had left them in good shape for the winter, they bought six dogs. Mm-mm-mm. And then they used the shingles that they were given to repair their, he calls them miserable huts. They used the cedar shingles for kindling. Probably because they didn't have anything else to burn. And they spent the rest of the money on, quote, sweets, pickles, jellies, and fancy groceries. (laughs) And and that reminds me of the criticisms today of people, what they use their food stamps for. Well, and the thing about the shingles may or may not be true. A lot of that's not true. Yes. I mean, it's like they don't know how to fucking fish and, and dig clams. Right. And and if they did burn the shingles, it's probably, you know, because they're cedar shingles. They're not asphalt yeah. like we know now. And they probably friggin' needed wood to for their yes, stoves to keep cold. their... It gets cold in the yeah. winter. 
He also goes on with the type of shit that we hear all the time today. Helping them is only harming them. Mm. And the state agent visit visits to help those who are, quote, actually hungry. And then he says, quote, a while ago, the agent took along a notary and had the marriages performed between six couples whose naive ideas of wedlock had not reached out the fact that a ceremony was necessary, end quote. It's like, well, as we know... It wasn't a, it was not an uncommon thing to have unmarried people have kids. It wasn't that easy to get married if you didn't live near a courthouse. Right, you had to wait till the judge came around or, or till or you to, could get there. Till you could get to the courthouse. Right. I mean there was a courthouse in Bath, but yeah, you would have to, you know, get and also your it shit costs together money. to get up there. Yeah, and why get married, you know? Mhm. The stuff he says is, a lot of it's untrue. He says that the women put on trousers, which they could have done, but so what? And dig clams, or they work on the mainland, he calls it the main, or they work on the main for farmers. But the men are too lazy to work. Mm. He tells about a woman who lives in a cabin of an old boat and does laundry, which is Mrs. Griffin, and he makes it sound like it's this weird thing. She did live on an old boat cabin, but, you know, that's Yankee ingenuity. Yep. There. I mean, why why waste it? <laughs> it's, a, it's a building. And lots of people live in boat. He tells everything that is the most condescending way possible. And the men actually did have jobs. John Eason was a talented mason and carpenter. A lot of the men worked on the mainland and the resorts, or fishermen, like I said. And not surprisingly, like a lot of coastal residents, most of the work was to be had in the summer, not the winter. So they would work a lot in the summer. The winter, they kind of hold up in their house. That's the way people... Some were too old to work. For instance, resident William Johnson was a Civil War vet. He fought in the Massachusetts 54th Regiment. Which, by the way, this past weekend in Boston, there was a march, and they um, congregated... They're the monument to the 54th Regiment. Mm. But papers such as the Casco Bay Breeze, which was published out of South Hartswell from 1901 to 1917, and the Portland Papers, Lewiston Papers, they all were publishing crap about the people of Malaga. Uh, the Casco Bay Breeze was probably the worst of the lot. An August 1924 article by Loris Percy has the headline, Malaga the home of southern Negro blood, incongruous scenes on a spot of natural beauty Mm. in Casco Bay. But the article doesn't really reveal much shocking information, saying, quote, they drank tea, spelled with a capital, if you please. For it reports to be true, its strength could sink a ship. Tobacco is their ambrosia, and it is said that they would almost sell their souls for a cut. A superstitious race they are on Malaga, even the screeching of an owl is an ominous sign to them. Hmm. It's like, what the fuck? I know. Is any of that like that? I anything know. bad? The Bath Enterprise in 1902 wrote, quote, Not fit for dogs. Poverty, immorality, and disease. Ignorance, shiftlessness, filth, and heathenism. A shameful disgrace that should be looked after at once. None of that is really true except for poverty, which could be used to describe most of Maine. Most of Maine. 
The Bath Independent in June 1911 did write nice things about the island school, saying that its reputation was good enough to attract a tuition-paying student from Phippsburg. Mm. It says the students are a bright lot, and the black and white students had the same high level of learning skills. A trustee at the Phippsburg Historical Society, Linda Wyman, who has seen many of the 100-year-old pieces of schoolwork, says, and this was in a May 2012 Portland Press-Herald, that the penmanship is perfect and the spelling is better than her own. Unfortunately, the success of the school could not save the community. Mm. In July of 1911, Governor Frederick Playstead decided to make a visit to the island. He greeted the islanders and assured them that they would not be evicted. He was accompanied by his entire executive council. He said the island's homes should be raised and new ones built and a new well drilled for the islanders. He said, quote, the people should not be forced to leave their poor homes. So he did say, the first thing I read said that he went there and said, all these buildings should be torn down and burned. He did say that, but then he went on to say, and we should build new ones for these people. Right. So to clarify yes. that he wasn't just saying, throw them off the island. So he was kind of advocating for them. But then after his visit, a few weeks after his visit, the minutes of the governor's council showed that the state of Maine was sick of paying for aid to poor communities that they considered, quote, a blot upon the state. The places they particularly didn't like were Frenchboro, which is an island in Frenchman's Bay, which is near Bar Harbor. And I think Frenchboro either had a lot of French-Canadian descendants or um, Native. Native people on it. Athens, which is kind of west of Bangor. And even today would never be confused with Athens, Greece. No. It's not a well-to-do community. And the other one was Malaga Island. Mm-hmm. According to the minutes of the meeting, quote... It was decided, it was decided, that the good of the state and the cause of humanity demanded that the colony be broken up and the people segregated. I like the way they say it was decided. It was decided. By some unseen force. Gee, we couldn't help it. It was just decided. They also decided that the state needed to take ownership of the island in order to, quote, rid the island of its population and prevent further squatting, end quote. Mm. And it's funny, out of all the thousands of islands, and a lot of them had squatting on them, that was the one that the state needed. And you wonder why he visited. I couldn't find anywhere. I feel like the press attention... Well, there was, yeah, there was so much stuff on this. Yeah. But there was a lot of negative attention, and people said it was an embarrassment to the state, the negative attention. And you feel like a lot of it's because of the interracial makeup of yes, it. Yes, that was definitely There why. certainly were places just well, as poor. Well, it was a sexy story for the these photographs of these black people living on this island in Maine and saying, ooh, look at, they're all, you know, interracial, and, you know, because they're, like I said, right. people, and they called them maroon. That was a term even when we were kids that was still used sometimes. It was weird. The fact that they felt like it was an embarrassment to the state because of all the the national, like the Harper's article and stuff brought it to the attention. And people were like, why aren't they doing anything about that horrible, you know, island? But also the governor had some other reasons, uh, personal reasons Mm. why he, I think he visited Mm -hmm. the island. And I assume you're going to get to that. Yes, I will. Yes, good. So, as I said, the Eli Perry family had owned, supposedly owned the island, but they never did anything. They bought it in 1818, never paid taxes, never really paid much attention to it. But suddenly, 
after this governor's visit, they visited a member of the family because Eli was gone. It was his descendants. His, his estate owned it. The title of the land was in question because they had never paid taxes. So mm. they kind of, I don't know. Yeah, don't you kind of lose it if you don't pay taxes? Yeah, you do now, but, you know, it was 1818, and then, yeah. and then Maine became a state in 1820. Oh, yeah, I can see how that would be. They allowed people to use the island, and they never told anyone to get off. They didn't charge rent or anything. The, so they didn't act the like they owned it. Qu- no, they didn't. Yeah. And even the Boston Evening Transcript, which was a newspaper at the time, 1911, even questioned whether or not they mm. they owned it. But in any case, a member of their family showed up on the island and told the people on Malaga t- that they had to leave because they were going to sell it and they don't want... They and that was in 1911? Right after the governor's yeah. visit. One of the descendants of one of these families said, you know, they were living there. Some rich white guy comes and says, you got to get off the island. It's like, oh, okay, we better leave. Some of the people started to leave then. Yeah. But something that I found interesting was after the governor's visit, so in August, the governor came to visit in July, the uh, Malaga Island Settlement Association approached the Perry family and said, we'd like to buy the island. Mm -hmm. And the Perry family acted like they were interested in Mm -hmm. that. And they were negotiating with them. And then suddenly the state came and bought it. And Mm. the, the state bought it. For the same amount as the association was negotiating with the Perry, so about $400. What a coincidence state, that it was... The, so in September, the state bought it. Island. I know. That it was the same amount I and everything. Know. And the state told the residents of the island that they had until July 1st of 1912 to be gone from the island or their homes would be burned down. Mm. In December 1911, the entire Marks family... Now remember, they had made them wards of the state, most of the residents, in 1905. Okay, that's right. So in 1911, the entire Marks family, seven people, and a woman, an elderly woman named Annie Parker, were put in the main school for the feeble-minded. And this was in New Gloucester. Well, it goes Pownall, New Gloucester. It's on the border. Right, there's a gray area. A lot of accounts you read will say New Gloucester, but it's like in North But the Pownall. older ones say Pound also, like the old signs and stuff. Who knows? It could be the, one of those things where town lines yeah, changed. Yeah, and probably. Some were given a test of their intelligence. The girls, Lizzie, Lottie, and Etta, they were school girls, and they asked them to identify a telephone, which they had never seen. And they asked them who the president of the United States, uh, one of them said Teddy Roosevelt. And he had been president up until two years years before. before. Was it Taft? Taft took over. So because they answered those wrong, that proved they were feeble-minded. And we went to Pineland Farms, which is where the school for the feeble-minded is. Yes, used to be. And while there, we bought a history book. And there's a passage about this family. And it says, one of the employees, a cook at the school, strongly felt that some members of this family were not feeble-minded and shouldn't be there. And she tried to make a big case for them being removed. Well, two of them did leave the school. But it was a cook. It wasn't even somebody who dealt with the people on a personal level who had to make this big case that they didn't belong there. And she just wouldn't and let it go. And they were all, the Marks family were people of color. The three Marks daughters, Lizzie, Lottie, and Etta, had all been featured in Mrs. Lane's book, The History of Lane School, as good students. But the generic form the physician filled out says that the girls, their parents, their brother, James, were, quote, not a proper subject for commitment to an insane hospital 
but huh. a proper subject for the main school for the feeble-minded. And by the way, it wasn't really a school. That was No, just, it, was an institution. it was an institution. And my guess is that this feeble-minded designation could cover that's a lot a, of... That's a eugenics term, too. I mean, oh, it's okay. a specific term. Okay. They have, like, different designations, like moron, imbecile. I know. I know I shouldn't laugh. We are more... Laugh. Yeah, I know. Um, well, they're names that these days you use either in a, in yeah. a choking, generic way but or But they actually had yeah. them. The rest of the islanders gradually left the island through the winter and spring, many of them taking their homes with them by boat and some over the ice the way they had brought them. One family, the Tripps, had a very tragic story. Robert and Laura Darling Tripp and their two children set off in a houseboat. They were unable to find any place willing to let them moor. So they ended up more to a small island or probably a rocky outcropping mm. more than an island. Laura, well, they were all malnourished, and Laura became gravely ill, and it was during a bad storm. Robert went to the mainland to find a doctor, and when he returned, he found her dead, and the two young children were clinging to her. Mm. One of them, Harold, never spoke of his past to family except when drunk. Then his daughter recounted in a 2009 radio documentary, A Story Best Left Untold, which I'll discuss later, that he would rage about it. But the children and grandchildren never quite understood what he was talking about. So he would go on and on about it. And they're there, oh, there he is, raging. Well, like, what is he, t- he wouldn't talk about it when he was sober, but he blamed the state for the death of his mother. Like a lot of other black communities around the country that have been wiped out, no one talks about them. The residents of Malaga settled in other places. A lot of towns refused to give them pauper status and wouldn't allow them to stay. So they moved around. But those who did stay in the phippsburg Harpswell bath area suffered a lot of abuse from other citizens. Called names like feeble-minded, Sabasco N-word was a common one, stuff like that, that they were inbred. So they stopped talking about Mulligan. They stopped telling people that that's where they were from. Those names are pretty common around that area anyway because the families have lived there so long that... People don't give it a second thought anymore. And these people didn't tell their children the family history. A lot of them didn't know anything about Malaga Island. But it wasn't totally forgotten. In 1935, so 20 years later, Mm -hmm. the Lewiston Evening Journal wrote that Malaga was a place that it wasn't unusual to see a, quote, renegade white for a father, a fat, frow, black as night for a mother, Hmm. Three children, all white, the offspring. What a blood endowment for the youngster. And this quote brings up another factor in the annihilation of the community. Eugenics. In the beginning of the 20th century, eugenics was all the rage. If you don't know what that is, here's a quick definition. It's the pseudoscience that claims that bad traits such as laziness, criminal behavior, feeble-mindedness, and which is a eugenics term, as I said, are inherited. To make the human race stay healthy, we must not allow weak links to reproduce. Forced sterilizations and committing people to institutions against their will were common practices. For the good of the race, of course, and yes, they did mean the white race, of course. Maine had hundreds of forced sterilizations between the years, I think it was like 1910 and 1935. You know what killed eugenics credibility? Hitler and Nazi Germany. Eugenics was actually taught at the University of Maine from 1913 to 1930. Wow. It was very popular across the United States right about the time all this stuff happened at Malaga. It was kind of at the peak, probably. And this wasn't just actually just eugenics. This was 
American psychological terms, oh, nice. that to classify scores below 70, 70 is kind of the watershed yeah. for whether you're intellectually impaired or, as they used to say, mentally retarded. Morons, imbeciles, and idiots. Morons, those with IQs between 51 and 70, adequate learning skills to complete menial tasks and to communicate. And one of the things I read, he called some of them morons and some of them imbeciles. Okay, an imbecile so is... none of them were idiots. So, well, that's good for them. An imbecile has an IQ between 26 and 50, unable to progress past a mental age of approximately 6. Hmm. An idiot, your IQ is between 0 and 25, poor motor skills, extremely limited communication, and little response to stimulus. And according to this psychology website, the moron imbecile idiot classification system remained in use until the early 1970s. Wow. They wonder what, with Malaga, you kind of wonder... For instance, the girls couldn't identify a telephone. So what standards were being used? It was kind of of like the voting test that they would make people Right, things people have no ability to know. I know. Doesn't measure your intelligence, especially back in the days when there was nowhere to draw information from. Like I said, they were students that could read and write. It kind of reminds me of complaints about the SATs. And I don't know if this is still going on, but I know it was a big thing a while back, where a lot of questions on the SATs are about things not familiar to kids from certain backgrounds and cultures and stuff. But anyway. So those eugenic proponents were chomping at the bit to rid the world of the Malagites. They were loving it. And so on the island in 1912, July 1st, George Pease, who was from the state, he had visited there before to uh, see what was going on. He showed up to evict the last residents, and nobody was there anymore. There were no homes. There was nothing to show that anyone had been there except for the schoolhouse and 17 graves mm. of former residents. The schoolhouse was disassembled and then rebuilt on Louds Island, Maine, which is off Bristol, which is where Pemaquid Point is. Mm. There's a beautiful lighthouse there. And actually, by boat, it's not very far at all. By by driving, it is. Because you've got to go up and down. And in the final erasing of the lives that were part of the island for over 50 years, the graves were dug up and brought to the graveyard at the main school for the feeble-minded in New Gloucester or Pownall. And the state didn't just move 17 graves from one place to the other. They combined them all into five caskets. One historian thinks that when they got there, they realized there wasn't room to bury the five caskets in the space allotted, so they combined them further into three. Uh, So I guess they haven't really done a, like a sonar or anything, whatever you would do on the ground to see what's down there. They just are going by what they've read. The gravestones don't even have, and we'll have pictures of the, we went to the graveyard. They don't even have everyone's name on them or real dates. They just say November 1912. Right. And then they have like five children of the Griffin family, stuff like that. It's a final insult to their memories, and it's not treating them like people. No. A newspaper headline from 1913 sums up the general attitude. Cleaning up Malaga Island, Mm. no longer a reproach to the good name of the state. Well, good for Maine now. So, and that brings up another reason the people of Malaga were not welcome to remain there. There were actually a few other black communities, as I said, I talked about some in the beginning. There were also Great Yarmouth Island and Hens Island. These places were pretty much left alone. But in the beginning of the 20th century, Casco Bay was becoming the tourist destination that it remains today. Transportation was improving, and people were getting more mobile. 
and right across the water was Rock Gardens Inn, which was built between 1909 and 1912, and it's now owned by the Sabasco Harbor Resort. And this was a destination for wealthy tourists, as it still is. Malaga, as I said, was right across the water and easy to see. I said it was very close. I mean, you can pretty much see right over Reach out and touch it. No one wanted to see the woman of Malaga hiking up their skirts to dig clams or hanging out a bunch of laundry. It was called an eyesore and worse. There were plans to build resorts on Horse Island and possibly on Bear Island, which is the large island to the west of Malaga. It's right next to it. As Holman Day wrote in that Harper's article I quoted earlier, quote, Between Kittery Point and Quaddy Head, resorters have acquired hundreds of headlands and thousands of islands. A phalanx of cottages fronts the sea. The coast is pretty well monopolized by non-residents. No trespass signs are so thickly set they form a blaze trail. Hmm, that that's, sounds familiar. That's still the way it is. And anyone who lives in a coastal area would... Probably has the same thing going on all the way up and down the eastern seaboard. Malaga Island, smack dab in the middle of all those other soon-to-be resorts, was prime real estate. As a matter of fact, after the cemetery was cleared, the island was sold to Everard A. Wilson, who was a close friend and business partner of a Dr. Gustavus Kilgore. Hmm. The funny thing was... Dr. Kilgore played an instrumental role in the state's mental health policies, including signing commitment orders for people sent to the school for the feeble-minded. My, what a coincidence. And yes, and also he was the chair of Governor Playstead's Executive Council investigating conditions on Malaga Island. Wow. So he was in this position. His friend bought the island. Mm. But the funny thing is no no resort was ever built there. Yeah, Nothing well, maybe they planned to and, you know, they just... They're, I don't know. I'm surprised. Though. I'm honestly surprised like Sebasco didn't buy. I think they bought Harbor Island because they own some of that now. Mm-hmm. The island changed hands numerous times over the years until 2001 when it was bought by the Maine Coast Heritage Trust. As has been the case on the island for as long as anyone can remember, lobstermen use the island to store traps, boys, and other gear. This is a common practice on small islands. The island is used by day hikers and picnickers. There's no camping or anything allowed. Yeah, you have to kayak to get out to yeah, it. Yeah, you have to boat out there. One remnant of the past came up in the slang of the area. People would call others a Malagite or, or a Malago as a pejorative term for anyone with dark skin or who was less than average intelligent. Apparently it's not used much anymore, but it was used up until like the 70s and mm. some people were kids. What are you, Malaga? For almost a century, the state of Maine ignored the atrocity of Malaga Island. What was done was not acknowledged, let alone apologized for. A lot of people didn't know about it until an article in Downey's Magazine in 1980, which contained a few inaccuracies, but brought the subject up at least, because a lot of people didn't know about it. We certainly weren't taught about it in Maine history in school here. No, no, not at all. In 2008, a middle school in Bath called The Greenhouse produced a little short film. Uh, After the middle school little documentary, the... Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in 2009. They did a radio documentary in conjunction with a photography essay called Malaga, A Story Best Left Untold. Which is a weird sounding title. Like title. But apparently when they were researching it, in fact, if you read on their page, they have a web page where they explain the origin of how they decided to, but they were calling descendants of the darlings to get them to talk about it and somebody who hung up on them all they said was it's a story best left untold and hung up 
See, what they should do is have it in quotes or I something. I know. It's a weird, I thought uh, it was a weird title. In 2010, the state of Maine passed a resolution that expressed profound regret for the numerated injustices visited upon the Malaga Island residents. Governor Baldacci, who is not the governor no, now. No, he's not. John Baldacci. He visited Malaga and issued a formal apology to about 80 descendants of Benjamin Darling. His apology was very emotional and sincere. He had a, it was very nice. I think there's a reason behind the perpetuation of the myth or legend that the settlers were runaway slaves from the south or freed slaves instead of native Mainers, which they were. Most of them were native Mainers, except for Benjamin Darling. They were here for generations. It served to paint them as from away, which is a term that you'll hear in Maine. Instead of evicting people who had lived and worked and contributed to the state for generations, they were evicting outsiders. Yes, I totally agree. It's always easier to turn people against each other when you magnify what's different about them than what we have in common. Right, and it's more shameful the if you consider them Maine citizens and people who have been here for generations. More Yankee than a lot of people. Right. Then it's more difficult to acknowledge, to rationalize what you're doing, because then you have to admit other truths about yes. them, too, and that a lot of what was being said was false or sensationalized. The same thing could happen. To, it oh, is easily. happening. It's, it's a different group of people. I mean, they're not labeled as eugenics anymore, but there's obvious. obviously we know from what just happened in Charlottesville that... There are people out there that still think that the white race is superior and people shouldn't mix and all this BS. And as much as just seeing them on TV shows how they're not shining examples of that philosophy, (laughs) the problem is that the more that's legitimized, the more people think it's okay. Like, I feel like with Malaga, a lot of what happened came out of the inaccurate reporting and the sensationalistic reporting because that's how people got their information. But today you also see journalism that doesn't question people, that gives as much legitimacy. I think it's changing a little even in this past week, but it gives as much legitimacy to somebody with really, with views that just don't hold up as it does to facts or to views that are on the side of moral and ethical right, because there's this misunderstanding of what being fair or being objective is, and a report on our local TV station where a young reporter, a black guy, interviewed a member of the white supremacy group that was in Charlottesville, and of course the guy wouldn't show his face, had to be interviewed from the back. The reporter let the guy kind of spew his stuff without really questioning. And the white supremacist said Charlottesville was an example of how the racists couldn't get along. And also their view, he's not a racist, you know, but their view view that people should have, races should have separate homelands. And he didn't mean that we all go back to wherever our relatives were from, but that I assume America would be the white homeland and then people of color would have to go to another one. And I guess if you have any color. And I was frustrated when we made our last one because the reporter, first of all, he could have said, well, here I am a black guy and you're a white guy. And we're talking about a very volatile subject, but we're actually sitting here at a picnic table in Maine talking about it like two reasonable people. And he didn't point that out, but also he didn't, on that report, pin him down on the homeland thing. And how would that work, you know? And I get frustrated by reporters, both big and small, who don't 
try to pin people down when they spew stuff. But then the next night on the news, after we had recorded our episode, they had another thing where the anchorman, Pat Callahan, was sitting with a reporter, and I don't know if they got a lot of phone calls or what. Pat Callahan said, a lot of people said, why did you put that guy on TV? Yeah. And so they were trying to explain that. And I, frankly, I don't have necessarily a problem with that if you, if you don't just use it as a forum for the guy's thing. But the reporter apparently had asked the guy about the homeland thing and tried to explain it a little on the news. He didn't explain it very well, and they never showed the conversation. Hmm. So they did try to... But you kind of wonder, first of all, why they didn't show it on the actual report. What I would have liked to have seen was the white supremacist guy talk about what his experience First of all, was. I would have liked to have seen his face. I know. He's because if you're not showing your face, then you... How much do you believe in your... Well, he was afraid of backlash. Yeah, well, you know what? Why? If you're proud of it, you should just... I understand what he's saying. I'm not defending him. Yeah. He could have talked about what he experienced down there, but then I would have liked to have seen one of the other side people explain. Who, and you know there were people from Maine oh, down there. I know there were. Explain what their experience. And maybe they're trying to, oh, we need to understand them. I understand. Right, them. right. But you need a more, you need a more contextual report. Like yeah. the white supremacist also said that immediately upon arriving, they were attacked by the counter protesters. So the reporter should have, instead of just nodding, should have said, well, describe how that happened. Yeah, Explain happened? to me what happened. Yeah. In detail, because it's easy for people People to say stuff like that. It's up to reporters to probe a little and to find out if that really happened or not. Or what exactly did happen. Or what exactly did Maybe happen. Maybe they were attacked. You know, people talk, oh, they just want to sell papers, blah, they just want people to watch TV. Well, people don't understand that the real issue with journalism today, and one of the reasons we're in the political pickle we're in, is that, in my experience, a lot of journalists are lazy. They just let people talk. There aren't a lot of creative or critical thinkers, and they think it's wrong to probe people or ask questions or ask people to elaborate or defend themselves. They think that reporting is just letting somebody say anything and then writing your story that way or putting it on TV. And I used to try to explain to reporters, you can ask why. You can have people explain. Just because this person said all this stuff doesn't mean you have to print everything Mm. they said. And you're... If you can't understand or explain it, the reader can't, and you have well, to ask why. it's frustrating as a reader to read it. You, you have all these questions. You're reading a story, and it's like, yeah, right. why, and, why, and, why, you know, you and, got and the and person a, right in front of you, ask them. And a bigger picture on that, too, is so then all these generalities get reported that people consider true. Yes. Things you think about certain politicians or something that's being said over and over as a fact that isn't and nobody's questioning it. It's, I brought this. I'm not going to keep referring. Yeah, to I don't think we can go on the same rant we went no. on on our original. But there used to be people. Ted Koppel, you like brought I said, up. And Diane Reams, both older journalists and both pretty much retired. They still kind of do some stuff. That would ask people to clarify, and there still are some. Well, there was, I was watching Joy Reid this morning, and there was somebody, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who he was, and he was speaking in very patronizing tones about 
something, and she was trying to pin him down, and she must have said half a dozen times, but you still haven't answered my question, and he was just sliding out like a piece of jello, but she didn't give up, and she kept saying, you still haven't answered my question. And that's what reporters need to do instead of just... And point out that, yes, they acknowledge the person is not answering their question because when you're the person watching, you're like, why can't they get that guy to just answer? Or do they realize he's not answering their question? And so at least if you say that, okay, but that didn't answer my question. Right. Or like I said, you know, on NPR now, I've noticed that they will come back at people saying, you're saying this, but the facts that we have or the statistics we have or whatever are showing this. So can you explain why you're saying that? You know, so people do are, I think they're getting a little bit. They are. And one of the problems too is now that there's so much information out there and it's so easy to just take information from other places and this kind of almost gray area plagiarism that happens so often misinformation is just repeated over and over. I noticed on our next episode, which we've recorded, having to do with the Michelle Carter, Conrad Roy suicide texting case, when I was doing the research for that, there were certain factual errors that were repeated over and over, almost the exact same wording from place to place. And we try, when we do our reports to say what our sources are. And, mm-hmm. and we try to find the most factual, I try to find a bunch accurate. of different sources. And I also try to go back as far as I can to get to the, close to the sources Right. Possible. You want to use contemporary from the time. Yes. In and fact, s- I looked up the actual Harper's article and I tried looking up old newspapers. But the lesson about Malaga is that, you know, people can look at it as something that happened 100 years yeah. ago. But, and, oh, what a horrible thing. And we, it was hidden... But the issues are repeated only in different ways today. The, the, same. the generalities about people of color or people who are poor, the power of the state and the power of the press to influence people's attitudes, especially when people are just so fucking grateful it's not them who are in the sites and it's somebody else that's being aimed at. This revisionist history about monuments and Civil War monuments and the Civil War and what those things mean and how people just, even people who don't necessarily follow white supremacist views, think it sounds reasonable. Yeah. And that's uh, how like you... why are you making such a big deal about it? Right. And that's how you get to a point to where a whole group of people can be treated like lesser human yes. beings. And it, let's be honest, we've been doing that in this country since we've been a country. We have. And and it, I feel like lots of times people just look for ways to perpetuate that and to feel good or at least okay about it. And as we mentioned on the other episode and as we've mentioned here, Maine is the whitest state in the nation. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for us to be complacent or comfortable because we live in a place where racism doesn't have that big an impact on us and in it, our it, personal and it day-to-day isn't day even lives. in evidence very much because although you hear I hear I hear stuff we every hear day. it but there aren't in the last seven or so years since we've had the governor we've had Maine has come into the national spotlight quite a few times and been portrayed as a racist state. And also, you asked me, we talked about it in our flawed episode, but at the time, even though there was racism against blacks in Maine, the racism was more against the the, uh, Native Americans that lived in Maine. There was a lot of racism against them. Yes, and we don't have any high school sports teams that are called the such-and-such racial slur, but we still have the Scowhegan Indians 
And not that Indians is necessarily even a slur, but as they point out, Amelia Smith is the head of Not Your Mascot group in Maine, uh, and she's a Penobscot. And her point is, we're human beings, we're not mascots. The crap that she takes for it, and the crap that people take for it, and the vitriol, and the people in the town who remind me a lot of the people with their Confederate flag saying, well, this is our heritage, this is our tradition. But, you know, when your heritage and tradition are found to be offensive to the fellow citizens of your state, then it's time to say, okay, it's just a high school nickname. I know. And so many other high schools and colleges have changed. It doesn't change where you went to high school. It doesn't change the good times you had there. If you were the captain of the football team, it doesn't change that. It just kills me how these symbols of history are considered the history. And it's easy, and I'm not saying what Maine's natives went through is better or worse than what Maine's people of color, other color, went through. But it's easy when you live in a hugely white state to feel that, A, it's not your problem. And, or it doesn't happen here, yeah. It, or to feel really complacent for things. And let, let's face it, you if you support a, a high school's mascot being the Indians, what else aren't you going to understand? I know. You know, one of the self-published books I had to read for that contest, the author was from Maine. He was a former attorney, and he briefly mentioned Squaw, what used to be Squaw Mountain. Yeah. And that a a very small minority of liberal tree huggers or something, politically correct liberal, got the name changed. And I'm thinking, hell no. First of all, that's a pejorative term, and it was an outcry among the state's native people and supporters. We could change it to Seaward Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been funny. Yeah. <laughs> if I had the guts, I would have said yeah. How about is some slur against lawyers? <laughs> you know, crooked lawyer mountain or something. I don't know. <laughs> but what, what was my point? I wrote a column when I used to write a newspaper column about the Skowhegan Indian situation. And my editor, probably wisely, my boss figured people wouldn't get it and it would be a bad idea. But I wanted to start the column with just a string of slurs. No, Pollock, Mick, Wap, yeah. Wetback, blah, 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 and say you're offended, right? You're you're appalled. Well, then why are you okay with Scalabian yeah. Indians? But, you know, cooler heads prevailed. He nixed it. He nixed it. He didn't think our readers... But it really is hard not to pat myself on the back. Like, ooh, I'm so great. It's hard to say those words. In fact, I was You're watching. very woke. We were, oh. I just learned you know what, what that meant. Yeah. We were talking, and we can't recreate our the one that we. No, you're going to have to go back and listen to we, our, our highly charged about, rant against we racism. We talked about uh, Saturday Night Live. Eddie Murphy had that white like me thing. Yes. Which was. Which I laugh. I still, I went back and watched it and It laugh. was an homage to one that the first season Richard Pryor was on this book notes show. With Jane with Jane Curtin, and had a, had a book called White Like Me. And he had put white shoe polish yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and one of the things that was really funny about that, even though it was funny and it was farce and everything, as a white person, it actually makes you realize that people of who aren't white feel like they're on the outside looking in. And that we don't even understand no, we don't the care. privilege and the comfort we're in. 
And the thing is, even though we're, this is one of the most comfortable states in the Union to be white, and I don't think Maine is a really racist state. No. I think people point to the fact, and we've talked about this before, that we have such a large white population as equating it with racism, but I think racism starts to rear its ugly head when when people feel threatened or right. challenged. And when you only have, like, I think the black population in Maine is, like, only, like, 1%. Right. So you're not going to feel, you know... But things aren't really, really going to change until the people who feel comfortable not caring about racism start but I caring. Have, oh, th- that's I know what, you do. I was going to say... You're very woke. <laughs> I was going to say... When I was looking for that Eddie Murphy one, I wanted to rewatch it because we talked about it. And it's there was funny. one with Richard Pryor, and um, I couldn't find the. Um, I could. We could only find the transcript of his original. Because it was in 1975. But there was there's one the that's online of Chevy Chase and Richard Pryor, where they're doing this word association thing because he's applying for a job and stuff, and Chevy Chase says the N word. Which was kind of a big Back deal. Back then, it was, but it wasn't. People right. said it on TV and yes. stuff. I mean, that was 1975. Yeah. That was 40 years ago. But just watching, rewatching it and hearing the word, it's just like, wow. Because we really... How did the audience stopped. react when... They laughed because, yeah. of the, um, because of the context. Yeah. It's just weird to hear someone say it. Especially How did the almost completely white Saturday Night Live audience react? But it is. I mean, hearing yeah. a white person say it... Is shocking. It's shocking. For things to fully change, people outside the circle of those who are really impacted by racism have to give as much a shit as the people who are impacted. Because if the issue doesn't have the support and the interest of everybody, even people in the whitest state in the country who can go, you know, all year long and never have to give a shit about racism... Mm -hmm. Things don't change. And it's not like it isn't around, because I hear... Well, you see fucking Confederate flags. And as I said on the last episode, and I'll say say every fucking episode we have, there's nothing else that a Confederate flag in the state of Maine says, but I am a racist. Yes, and we did have... um, I think you said you're probably going to just, even though the sound quality is bad on our um, recommendation, we're just going to... I'll stick that end part of the show and... The recommendation. That we did on the last show. But thanks for listening. If you you already listened and listened again, thanks for listening twice. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. (laughs) We're going to have a recommendation or maybe a non recommendation. Well, yeah. A book that kind of deals with everything we've been talking about today. In a way. In a way. That we had to read for, we read, read, but we read read for for our book group a couple months ago. It was Small Great Things by Jodi Pico, and I will say she gets credit for tackling a difficult subject. Yes, and she does like to tackle the the subject. And the premise of the book is that a woman, a nurse, a black woman, single mother, she's a nurse in an OBGYN ward, and there's a white supremacist. His wife is having a baby, and she's their nurse. He doesn't want her to be the nurse. No. And then something happens, and the baby dies, and she's accused of killing it. Because she didn't Because he do it. She didn't act to well, help the yeah. child. Or but it's, in it's, any it's, case. It's complicated. But she's accused. The, she's the, accused of her negligence. Her allegedly because the guy oh, said, yes. I don't want her to be my nurse. And the hospital backed him up. And we don't have to talk about the details of the plot. No. But... 
uh, one issue I had with the book is I found it, and I'm not necessarily, uh, I'm not a huge fan of this author anyways for this very reason. I found every character was a stereotype. People Very broadly, broadly. People's perceptions were very obvious and trite. You knew what was going to happen with each character. The good things I'll say, though, about it were, I've read a few of her books. Some I like better than others, but she is never afraid to tackle whatever subject. She does like to tackle subjects that some people would find hard to do. Sometimes she doesn't do it with the subtlety that some authors would I'll say that but she is a popular author and bringing the subject to light I don't think a lot of people realize even people in our book group were like I didn't realize that people would be like this yeah well they shouldn't be surprised now after this weekend but yeah, that that guy was. It's so not. It wasn't, and it wasn't an exaggeration. It's no, it really wasn't. not. It wasn't. To me, it's worse as a white person when someone like that is talking to you, thinking that you are on their side mm-hmm. and saying things that are just like so shocking to you. It's another thing if you're a black person and have to put up with their abuse. Yes. And that's bad too, more horrible way. But to see somebody that looks like a normal person and I and I come across a lot of people in my job. I deal with people all day long and for some reason they feel the need to talk about politics to me when I don't bring it up and I don't talk about it because I work in retail and but I do spend a lot of time with people. As I've mentioned before, I'm a kitchen designer, so we spend a couple hours with people, and sometimes more than once. And because I'm not saying anything, some of the things that come out of people's mouths, it's like, are you fucking kidding yeah. me? They assume you agree. It kind of reminds me of that Eddie Murphy sketch on Saturday Night Live when he was was like white like me. Where he puts on <laughs> white face, and like he gets on the bus, and everybody's having a party yeah. and everything. And oh, you don't have to pay? Yeah. He goes You're to the white. store. So when I was in sixth grade, our was a white guy from Maine. We had to read Black Like Me. And honestly, at that age is the best time, I think, to read that story. It gives you a lot of insight. You're less willing at that age to dig in your heels and deny And it it also, you don't realize. And that guy didn't realize the extent. And that was in the 50s. But guess what? If you did it today, you'd see. But the Jodi Pico book, one of my issues with it was everything was in such broad strokes. Yes. Like all the white people who thought they were liberal yes, were very true. numb. And like yeah, a, her lawyer, the black woman brings the lawyer shopping, but it's basically to show how she gets followed around in stores. Yeah. The white woman is totally... Ooh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah. like Doesn't she, she ever watch Oprah? But she's a lawyer who apparently represents inner city clients in a fairly urban area you would think she'd be a little aware of stuff. We're certainly aware of it, and we're not even in that position. Yeah. And, and maybe Jody felt like all the white people had to be really numb about racism to to make her point. And also, she writes like that anyway. And maybe you need a book with that kind of broad strokes to appeal to her audience. Yeah. And it, you need kind of easy generalities for people who aren't for the people who aren't deep thinkers. Or I would say the people who aren't comfortable with the subject matter or with that type of book. Like, you know, I want to read something that's engrossing and everything, but I don't want to have to, you know, I don't want to read some treaties on the, you know, race relations. And, you know, this makes it kind of easier. And I feel like the book is mostly for a white audience. Yeah. Because I, I think it is frustrating 
as it was for me to read it, I can imagine how frustrating it is for someone who's black. I know, I know. And so my recommendation is, yeah. Yeah, I'd read it. I mean, her books are easy to read. She's a good storyteller. Like I said, I've read some books of hers. I like The thing about her is, in all her books, she um, has different chapters with different points of view. I thought she did an okay job. One of the point of views is the white supremacist father mm-hmm. of the baby. I didn't think she did a bad job with him, except I thought that his at the end, he kind of, I don't want to spoil it. Yeah. But also, he is, despite his behavior, she plants little seeds of humanity in him, and I'm not saying that they don't have seeds of humanity in them. And maybe to keep reading, you need to have... Although his wife in the book didn't. Uh, no, she was horrible. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, a, I think, you know, a lukewarm, but yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. And again, I'm not... Issues I have with her are also writing issues, yeah. and I feel like when I read one of her books, I know every single thing that's going to happen. I know every line somebody's going to speak mm-hmm. before they say it, and that some people like that. Some though. people like that. That's it's just like with TV shows and movies. So that's this week's episode, and we're back. We'll be back. We'll next be week back. Mo is going to have doing one that's been in the news. I'll talk about it. You, yeah. And you can, for more information on us and more stuff. You can go to our website, crimeandstuffonline.com. You can find us on, on Twitter, Twitter, at Crime and Crime Stuff. Stuff. On Facebook, at Crime and Stuff. Yes. And on Instagram. And Facebook's the only one that uses the ampersand, I believe. You can but find be links on our website, Crime and Stuff Online, to donate on Patreon or PayPal. Yes, we and we very much appreciate donors. it. And we'd like you to rate and review us. Please, if you're on iTunes, just rate and review. It helps us get noticed and get more listeners. Yes. And we appreciate it. We very much appreciate all the support. Honest, honest review. And Yes, we, I don't care what you say. Just do it. We're not trying to bribe you to give us good reviews. We just, but if you got to this point, you, pro- oh, yeah. you couldn't hate us. So that or you're, you're just looking to fuel your hate. Yeah, that could be. Well, hey, if you and hate, you listen, it. I'll take the hate listeners. And those of you who have reviewed us and have donated and everything, we, we love you. We really are. Thank you. And we love to hear from you. Yes, so. we do. Please we, we get in touch. And also, you can listen to our other podcast, Groovy Tube. Groovy Tube, season one, The Crimes of the Brady Bunch. Yes. And we're going through the Brady Bunch. If you Bunch, think we're funny. Six episodes at a time. We're yeah. a little less deep, maybe, on that. And, um, most of the time. And we but post on our website and Facebook and Instagram pages screenshots. Yeah. With, um, we have the closed captions on so you can see what they're saying. Because we're old and can't hear. Yeah, and also so we can do screenshots with what they're saying. Yeah, because it's funny. And so you can go listen to that. You can listen to my notes from a cranky editor. Yes, which is a very short the episodes. Are episodes, very short, unlike these. It's for writers or people who are just interested in what And I'm excited about. about the upcoming fall because we have a, I have a lot, some interesting ones planned. We have a lot of interesting... And if the new crime happens. And if you're um, a donor, you'll be getting our newsletter where we have stuff that we're going to talk about. (laughs) about And and those are always subject to change depending on what happens. They always are. But if anyone does want to buy something, send us an email. Yeah. Yeah, you can see it. You can see our tote bags on our website. For our other podcast, Groovy Tube, I have four. Very groovy logo. Yes, we have a good logo. So I'm I'm exploring t-shirts for that, and I have a place I ordered a couple samples from. So if I like what they've done, we'll do some for crime and stuff too. We don't want to give you guys whether you're donors or buying. We don't want to give you chintzy. Yeah. We test the merch out ourselves before (laughs) we offer it. I love the tote bag. I use. Well, what I like with t-shirts. 
differences. We're both, we're, neither of us are really. Fatigued. Yeah. At, with big boobs. Thanks. And um, reminds me of that Seinfeld where. Yeah. Elaine thought the guy was only hiring big boob waitresses and it was all his daughters. But anyways, so I like to see what the extra large t-shirt is actually like. Yes. I like to see what the sizes are like. So we'll we'll let you know about that. So until next time. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. In fact, the fatter I get, the more they love me because I like to sit on my stomach. I know. And need my boobs. Yeah. Which... Actually, I, yeah. some well, guys like to hey, do that, too. Well, you know what? But the cat doesn't expect a blowjob in return. <laughs> um, um, 